All right, here we go. Live from I-95, basically. <laughs> How the hell is everybody? This is the QTR Podcast. Stoked to be here. It is April 19th, 2022. First and foremost, before we get started, I want to shout out my patrons. Patrons are people that sign up and donate a monthly recurring sum to help support the podcast. I'm going to shout them out. I will give you two sets of tiny little rules that will make the podcast more enjoyable, and then we'll get on our way. First and foremost, I want to shout out my friends over at JM Bullion, and JM Bullion has a brand new platform that I was checking out just a day ago. It is called Cyber Metals, and it's basically an online trading platform that allows you to instantly buy and sell vaulted gold, silver, platinum, and palladium. Uh, which can be a very cost-effective way to acquire metals because typically the premiums will be significantly less for the vaulted metals and customers can always redeem for physical metal at JM Bullion. So that's fucking hella convenient, right? When you have a bullion company that is dealing in trading vaulted gold, uh, you worry a little bit less about taking delivery. So uh, I wanted to give them a shout and let you, my listener, know... That can you tell I'm reading from a script? <laughs> Does it sound different from the fucking beginning of all the other ones? Because I'm trying to read this shit and say it in a way that I want to say it. But uh, anyways, JM Bullion is offering both gold and silver at spot uh, on Cyber Metals right now as a special introductory promo. And uh, so you can go check that out at CyberMetals.com. If you have any questions, you can always, or you want to buy regular bullion or have any questions about buying and selling bullion, you can email Laura, L-A-U-R-A, at jmbullion.com. Let her know that you're a QTR podcast listener, and she will make sure that you get taken care of if you need help with cyber metals, if you need help ordering metals. Uh, if you have questions, you don't want to deal with the website, you want to talk inventory, uh, anything having to do with getting bullion in your direction, she'd be happy to help you out. JM Bullion, my longtime supporters. Love those guys. If you love me, give them a play and tell them QTR sent you because they've been supporting me for a long time. They don't give me any shit at all about anything that I say, about how many episodes I do. Uh, they're just good guys. There's two guys over there. They're both named Rob that I've you know kind of had a back and forth with for a couple years. Uh, just great people. So happy to recommend JM Bullion. They've been in business for a decade now. They've done over $3 billion in sales. Check them out. All those links are in my podcast description. This podcast also brought to you by my buddy George Gammon, who I'm about due to have on. I'm going to have to interrupt him from his jet-setting lifestyle of launching you know, four highly successful in-person conferences a year. George is crushing it. I don't know what kind of money he's making. And I know he'll say it's not about the money. It's about figuring out ways to, you know, stay, uh, you know, maintain prosperity in an out of control world of central banks. But, you know, look, we're all capitalists. Like, you know, I'm not just sitting here fucking writing my sub stack for my health. You know, like, eh, kind of am actually. No, <laughs> it is kind of cathartic. I should be paying my subscribers by the hour to listen to the shit that comes out of my head. What was I saying? Fucking George Gammon. Great dude. Rebel Capitalist Pro. Great platform. He teamed up with Brent Johnson, Lynn Alden, Chris McIntosh, uh, and a bunch of other wonderful people that understand the world of economics and finance way better than I do. They do all types of Q&As every week, daily live streams. Uh, George Gammon, wonderful guy, one of my friends in the business. Happy to recommend him. Happy to recommend Rebel Capitalist Pro and his forums, which I especially love. 
check out Rebel Capitalist Pro. Link is in the podcast description. This podcast also brought to you by my friends Wall Street Jesus and Sang Lucci over at the Steam Room. The Steam Room, a wonderful piece of software. The best, actually. These guys are the OGs of tracking options flow. They've been doing it also for a decade now. Somebody posted on Twitter the other day, you ever met anybody from Twitter in real life? And I was just thinking, Sang motherfucking Lucci. I've met a million times. He picks up my bar tab when we go out. (laughs) So I try to find him as much as possible. I was just in Boston a couple days ago. I had to text him like, dude, you in Boston? No, he's got like 10 different locations he works from and he wasn't there. Anyways, saying Lucci, hell of a guy and the steam room, hell of a piece of software. What does it do? It was one of the first pieces of software created specifically to trap money coming into the options market, which a lot of times can help uh, precede moves in the equities market. It's uh, These guys have been working on it and improving it for 10 years. It's a beautiful piece of software. They'll let you try it for free. No obligation, no nothing. Just reach out to Lucci. Tell him the Q-Man sent you. Tell him you want a free trial. And uh, all these guys, you know, if you want to try out their shit, just let them know. They'd be happy to help you out. I have great working relationships with all of them. Finally, I want to shout out my friends over at Doomberg. Doomberg is a wonderful substack that I love to read. They look at the world through an Austrian lens, through a skeptical lens. A fantastic site that you can subscribe 100% free to, and that link is in my podcast description. So if you're looking to do some reading, check out my friends over at Doomberg. Also, this podcast brought to you by Corvus Gold, Investors Underground, Ken R., Chris Bede, Nicholas Parks, Matthew Zimmer, my man Jay Mintzmeyer, Russ Valenti, we got to get together soon, Creighton Titus, Camila Soul, and uh, just shout out a couple of my founding members of my Fringe Finance column. By the way, Fringe Finance is my blog. Uh, A Farmer and Joseph K.H., thank you so much for your continued support. This podcast has a three-drink minimum, and As a reminder, I am not an investment advisor. I hold no licenses, no registrations, and I really generally don't know shit about shit. If I'm talking about something, assume that I have a position in it. I'm generally, you know, talking about stuff that I'm invested in. Uh, I try to be upfront with my disclosures, but the big disclosure you need is that I don't know much, and you shouldn't listen to anything that I say as investment advice ever. Uh, Not just this episode from now until I am... Put in my grave, and even then, on a windy day, if a copy of the Wall Street Journal happens to be blown around in my graveyard and, you know, gets wet and sticks to my headstone, and on the front page of the Wall Street Journal it says, buy oil, don't even do that. That's too close to me giving you financial advice, even though I'm dead and it's in print and somebody else wrote it. Even that's too close, okay? So anything in my vicinity, do not take as financial advice. All right, on with me today, the man, you know, look, most people that like invite themselves onto my podcast, I just ignore <laughs> because I fucking hate that. I hate when people do that. They're like, oh, you know, be who would be a good guy to have on or me, you know, like it's like, yeah, well, I'm sure you're very fucking enlightening, but, uh, you know, I'd rather just sit here and talk to myself. But this guy, I took a chance once in letting this dude on because I think he texted me or something was like or DM me and was like, hey, you know maybe I should come on and I could talk about this, this, and this. And I was like, yeah, fuck it. You know, like, and now I like 
absolutely love speaking to him. I read all of his letters. Uh, I follow him like very closely. Uh, and I just think he's a genius. I think he gets it. I think he uh, is a good at articulating things. Um, and he's one of my favorite people to listen to uh, when it comes to macro uh, of late. And that is, of course, my friend, Larry, Larry Lawrence, whatever the fuck you want me to call you. L, we'll just say L Lepard. How does that sound? How are you, brother? That sounds great. I'm good, Chris. How are you? I'm certainly, I'm certainly not a genius, and yeah, I'm pretty embarrassed. I invited myself on your show. Yeah, it worked out great, but, didn't it? I feel like, by the yeah, way, it has. My, no, it's been fabulous. I've, I've really enjoyed it, and you know, the friendship is great. My blog this week has just been uh, excerpts from your letter. Uh, I know. So far, I think two out of my three posts so far this week. You should call it Larry Lepard's fringe finance but uh, uh you know I, I write these lengthy letters right i try to explain things because some people just don't understand what's going on so sometimes i get a little long-winded but so be well, it i thought i thought you did a great job in your letters and those are available uh on my uh blog fringe finance um with the link is in the podcast description uh, i'll give you larry's bio real quick if you don't know it he manages the ema garp fund uh it's a boston-based investment management firm their strategy is focused on providing monetary debasement insurance. He has 38 years experience in an MBA from a little community college up north called Harvard. Ever heard of it? Uh, and he likes to curse. Okay. And on Twitter, he's <laughs> at Lawrence Lepard on Twitter. That's also in my podcast description. You can check that out. Okay. With that out of the way, uh, I got a million things I want to talk to you about. I, I read your letter. I thought it was brilliant. I listened to your most recent podcast with Palisades Gold Radio which I also was like one of the best listens that in Luke Groman's uh, podcast with them when the whole Russia Ukraine conflict first started, I think are the two best things I've listened to this year. But first and foremost, how did I miss you while I was in Boston last week? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. You know, I just gotten back. We spent some time uh, down in, in sunnier climbs and I saw you were here, but my wife had me run in a bunch of directions or I would have reached out to you. But it's all good. Next time we'll do it. Um, it never even in, occurred to me that you were in Boston. Where in Boston are you? Oh, I'm in the western part. I'm out in the suburbs in a town called Sherburne. You know, it's kind of a leafy, small suburb. So I used to live downtown, but I don't anymore. Cool. So you were downtown, right? Yeah, we stayed in Cambridge. Nice. And yeah. uh, right over the bridge. And right. uh, I got to tell you, Boston is alarmingly clean and nice. Almost... It's too clean and too nice. I was like, you know, I got there, the the drive from the train station to the hotel, I was like, wow, you know, this looks old and kind of historical, like uh, parts of Philadelphia, like old city Philadelphia, like old Montreal reminded me of a little bit, like, you know, just old, old buildings from the 1700s, the 1800s. And then um, I got to the hotel and I was, you know, first thing I was doing, I'm in a new city is I go for a run. And uh, I ran, I think, you know, five or six miles. I ran over the bridge from Cambridge, uh, you know, like around like the circle, I guess, like where the government buildings are past that one little, uh, I don't know if it's Tremont, through the public garden, through like Tremont, where there's like a little side street there with all kinds of shops and shit. And then looped all the way back around, expecting at some point to find fucking like a piece of trash somewhere on the ground or like a homeless person or like a person you know just standing in the streets going batshit insane because that's what happens in philadelphia and there was none of that every time i left the apartment uh left the hotel the gardens were so nice everybody's walking around their fucking little patagonia you know zip up fleeces you know looking all fucking like rich and stuff and by the time i was ready to leave i was like man i kind of miss like the grime 
of Philadelphia a little bit. Like the drunks falling out of bars, the people like fucking screaming and carrying on. How is Boston allocating their tax money that that other cities in the U.S. aren't? I'm not sure. I mean, you you were in the better part of Boston. You need to go down to Southie or Dorchester, and you'll find plenty of the other stuff. <laughs> so you were in the uh, you know you were in the Back Bay, Beacon Hill, yeah, uh, Cambridge, you know, yep. along the river, MIT, you know, Harvard. So that's um, you know you you got kind of the upper the upper slice of civility, so to speak. Um, and there's plenty of what you've described in Philly, you know, here as well. But um, you know, it. it um, it is a nice town in a lot of ways. It's it's got some things, you know, a lot of history. So that, that part of it's kind of fun. And you can definitely like you, the the I don't even know what you call it. There's an air, you know, almost like Silicon Valley ish air. Mm-hmm. But there's a there's a bit of a like, and it may have just been the area I was in. Okay, you know, you got mm. Harvard and MIT, and basically fifty two thousand incredibly smart dorks just walking around at all times. But there was kind of it, like at least I felt like there was a little air of like, you know, pretentiousness in that area. Kind of everybody, sure. everybody seemed For like sure. very well dressed. You know, pushing sure. around super expensive strollers. You know, it's yep. like okay, I kind of know like, um, you yeah, know, no, of course they're all much smarter than I am. But you know, no, I doubt that you you were in a very high end area. There's a lot. Cambridge has really become a big center for biotech. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. Did you run by any of those biotech buildings? I mean, there's there's been. You know, it, Boston, I mean, I, I first got here in the early 80s and, you know, we had the combat zone and, and uh, you know, it was, it was pretty gritty. I mean, it was really gritty, probably grittier than Philly. And, uh, you know, this this biotechnology, first the, the mini computers in the 80s and 90s and then the biotech movement more recently has really, really upgraded the town. There's just been a lot of money put into it. And, uh, you know, it, it shows. I mean, the universities obviously, too, have done extremely well and, and you know, a lot of people go there pretty well healed and then of course the downtown area um that you ran through that that is you know super high-end real estate super high-end neighborhoods that you're running through so yeah, it's it was... not it's not representative of the greater area there's there's plenty of grime well maybe next time i'll stay that. in maybe next time i'll stay in south boston i'd rather have a more authentic experience you'll get a much more authentic experience <laughs> you go anywhere other than where you were you were you were right in the in the top end the but i did thing, so. i loved running along the river you know yeah it's pretty isn't it? yeah. yeah it's just i you know the cherry blossoms out. I couldn't believe how beautiful it was. I mean, I don't know. It was it was overwhelming how nice it was. Actually, it was almost felt like too much, like a, like a movie scene or something. But but yeah, I loved it while I was there. I, I really did. And I want to you know I went to a bar called The Point where I got some great service and had a wonderful bartender and a wonderful waitress. Um, we went to uh, I went to the visit the fine folks at the Ascend. Uh, dispensary. The dispensary yeah, there is you go. on Absolutely. Friend Street, of course, uh, yep. which I thought was great. They were super helpful and nice people. All together, very good trip. So good. Yeah, yeah. no, it's a nice town. Um, so while Boston appears to be nice, uh, the rest of the world is kind of on fire in the background and crumbling before our very eyes. I guess I got a, I got a couple things that I want to ask you about. Um, the first thing is, you know, I, I don't want you to repeat your entire podcast that you did with Palisades because people can go and listen to that and kind of get that content too. But I want you to kind of sum up what you wrote about in your letter um, and give my listeners kind of a brief 
overview yeah, and, of how the monetary I'll, landscape has changed, and then we'll talk about where you see it going. Yeah, I'll try and keep it crisp because it can be very long. Long story short, what, what the war did, what Putin did when he announced the war you know, against the Ukraine, and then more importantly, when we responded with sanctions where we grabbed his reserves and, um, and uh, shut him out of the SWIFT system, um, this is kind of a monetary earthquake very akin to what happened when Nixon closed the gold window in 1971. And so um, what it did was it, it shocked, in my opinion, it shocked the whole world into recognizing that, you know, um, foreign currency reserves that a country might hold, they're not necessarily yours if the United States disagrees with what you're doing politically. And, you know, there are $12 trillion of foreign currency reserves out there. And, you know, you can bet that every other investor and country in the world took a look at that and said, you know, holy shit, you mean you guys can fucking grab my money and uh, right. if you don't like me? I mean, you know, what's that all about? And so you can bet that Saudi Arabia and India and China and Turkey and, I mean, you, you name it, Brazil, you know, every other country in the world, you know, woke up to, you know, the next morning and said, oh, my God, this, things have changed. And so, you know, this is, to me, a, a huge move in a, in a broader trend that I've talked about in my letters, and you and I have talked about before, Chris, which is that, you know, the, the financialization, the peak financialization of the West, you know, the bullshit paper money system that you rail against and I rail against that all these, you know, frankly, all these elites have created, and a lot of them went to school at Harvard, which is where you were staying in Cambridge. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's coming unglued, um, you know, too much leverage, too much paper, too much bullshit. And, you know, Russia just said, show me the physical. I mean, it's right. like Jerry Maguire, you know, I mean, you know, I, I got oil, I got wheat, I got natural gas. You guys need that shit, you know, pay me in something real because I'm not taking your paper crap anymore. And the implications of that in the monetary world are to me huge and earth shattering. And nobody can own enough, you know, gold, oil, silver. Um, I know you disagree with this, but Bitcoin, et cetera. I mean, you know, things that are in supply limits that have natural supply limits are about to benefit hugely as measured against things which have no supply limits like right. paper, you know, and as we know, they just can't stop printing. So is that a good summary of it? I yeah, think? it's I think, look, the key takeaway from that is the rest of the, you know, the West has decided to just arbitrarily seize Russian assets Right. Uh, you know, without really any due process or even a, even some type of fucking like hearing that kind of makes it look like they thought about it. They just said we're doing it. And right. regardless of what you think about the invasion of Ukraine, Russia has its reasons. And, you know, Ukraine obviously uh, also has uh, its case to make that it's uh, unjust. Re mm. Putting that aside... The idea that one country can kind of arbitrarily seize the assets of another country and its oligarchs um, and, un you know, under the guise of these economic sanctions that they're being called has put the rest of the world on notice. And, right. you know, that this is possible, like you just said. And the stunning thing about it is the West doesn't really have, you know, the leverage that you would want to have to do something like that, you know, we're that's that's the part that amazed me. We're, we're check raising with fucking seven two off suit. You know, we're sitting exactly. there holding up. <laughs> that's exactly what's going on. I mean, it's like and, and you know, Russia's just going to call the bluff. I mean, they're going to say, hey, you know, fine. I mean, the, the 
it was funny to watch Europe squirm and say, well, we're not buying rubles, you know, in order to use them to buy natural gas. No friggin' way. And, you know, Russia responded and said, well, you know, okay, fine. You know, we'll turn off the pipeline on Monday. Right. I mean, we're not sending you gas for free. You know, you're going to start buying rubles <laughs> or you're going to pay us in gold or you're going to pay us in Bitcoin. You know, right. pick one. But we're not we're not sending you the gas for nothing. And so you're right. I mean, you know, we, we you know, the West is really misplaying its hand here. But it's it's to be predicted. I mean, they're extremely arrogant. And the internal, you know, the internal thought pattern, I know, because I have friends who are in some of these organizations. The reason they seized all the oligarch stuff is they're hoping the oligarchs will overthrow Putin. And the, the Western narrative at, at the higher circles is, oh, well, Putin will be out in six months and everything will be fine. Right. Uh, I think they're miscalculating there. I think Putin's pretty well protected, and the odds that he gets you know knocked out or taken out are pretty low. That's so... Um, you know, the West has a real problem here. You know, we can't print oil, you know, and uh, and Russia has oil. The, the Europe can't print natural gas. Over 50% of the natural gas that goes, you know, that Europe uses comes from Russia. Without it, they don't have fertilizer, they don't have heat, they don't have energy to run their factories, et cetera, et cetera. So a lot of the electricity gets generated by it. So it's not just a they're going to freeze in the winter thing. It's an all-year-round thing. They need natural gas. And, you know, we're talking about sending them LNG. Well, if you look at the numbers, the amount of LNG we can send, it's a fraction of what they need. It's going to take years and years for, for that to get solved. So, again, you know, the West has overplayed its hand and over, we're way too far out of our skis on all this paper stuff. And, you know, Russia just, they just called our bluff. And it's a, it's a real problem. Um, and it's going to result in a lot of inflation and it's going to result in a lot of monetary debasement. And when you look at our hand, it's kind of like we got nothing. So it's it's unfortunate, but it is what it is. And, you know, forget all the politics of it. I'm just talking about the economics of it. Tell you that inflation, you know, the, the age of disinflation, you know, where we had trillions and trillions of dollars of negative yielding bonds, that is just long gone. That's in the rearview mirror. We are now in an inflationary age, period. And the issue is just, is it going to be super high or medium high or right. hyper? You know, it, it, and it's, that's that's hard to tell. Um, you know, I say hyper because I think mathematically, eventually it will be hyper. But I don't know the time frame on that. It could be ten years. Um, it could be two years. It's it's very hard to tell. Well, I couldn't help but notice that you used the word arrogance, and that's a word that I use all the time. All the time, I use the word arrogance because you really have to be in order to. And again. A million times I've had the discussion, is it willful ignorance on the part of central bankers or do they know what they're doing? It doesn't matter. You know, the, the, <laughs> it, re it really doesn't. And, you know, right. I, I was reading an article I wrote called um, Modern Monetary Theory Will Destroy the United States. And one of the things that I wrote in there was you don't even have to understand it to know that it's not a good idea. You just have to know that something doesn't feel right about right. it. And, you know, the, the promise of this infinite uh economic uh prosperity that we are entitled to and can right. ascertain through policy prescription it doesn't make any sense you know and yeah there's there's a lot of magical thinking in the world today chris i mean it, it, yeah you know in in lots of different areas you know and i mean don't get me started right <laughs> you know it's pretty clear to me there are two genders right and there's just there's a lot of magical thinking going on and um you know Unfortunately, you know, reality is reality, and it's going to come and, and bang us in the head, you know, pretty soon, in my view. Well, and that's always been my my take. I wrote an article 
in 2018 called the Fed is gutless. And by the time we realize it'll be too late. And that's been the story. If you've been a if you've been a permanent bear, as people refer to them, or an Austrian economist or just a skeptic or somebody that's not buying monetary policy in this country, the argument was always that time is going to run out. Now, I was I'm a little different in like my friend Peter Schiff who's, you know, saying it'll be this time, it'll be that time, it'll be next year, it'll be this year. You know, I never really like to say that because it's an unprecedented monetary policy experiment and the results are going to be unprecedented. So I don't want to I don't want to say that I can predict when it's going to happen other than it's definitely going to happen. It's a mathematical certainty that, exactly. this, that the fucking head exactly. gasket's I mean, going to blow here at some point. And, you know, the question is now, like, is that has, has Russia been enough? Is this going to tip the scales enough? I saw this morning China said uh, to the U.S. ambassador that Taiwan has always been a part of China and nothing is ever going to change that. So this bifurcation right now that's being created globally between the West and like maybe Russia, China, India, uh, you know, and some of the Middle Eastern nations is legit. Like it's it's oh, real, you know, oh, so how wide is that gap yeah. going to get? You know, I, I don't know the answer to that question. I mean, certainly wider. I mean, it. it you know, I, I find it fascinating that you know, the yuan and, and the and the ruble and you know even even uh, the rupee. You know, India is buying uh, energy from uh, Russia in rupees, right? I mean, these things are these are amazing developments, which all of which lead to what I call the death of King Dollar. You know, I say Putin shot the dollar in the head, and you know. Um, the U.S. has been able to live beyond its means for a very long time because we had all the military. We ran our country in a sensible manner. That I'm talking about the 50s and 60s now, and you know before the Vietnam War. And sure. you know the dollar was a reserve currency, but we've squandered all that. We squandered it. We we started squandering it. It got worse in '71. You know we got we got a reprieve because of you know uh, technology and the China price and deflation and the good stuff Volcker did to get it all under control. But, you know, we, we ran out of that reprieve and, uh, you know, 2008 was the beginning of the fourth turning and now we're deep in it. And it's happening fast, in my opinion. I mean, I think that I think you're absolutely right. You can't predict the timing. I, I say that over and over again. I know in 2011, 2008 and 11, I thought, well, this is it. We're going to hyperinflate and it's all over. And I couldn't have been more wrong. It cost me a ton of money for being so wrong. So I, I suffered personally as a result of it. So now, I, you know, I don't know the timing like you, but. I do know the math, just like you, that, you know, you cannot grow debt forever um, in excess of GDP growth without without eventually having it collapse. I mean, it's like trying to cure alcohol alcoholism by having another drink. I mean, right. it's just not going to work. I mean, so, you know, my view is, you know, we should we should bite the bullet and go cold turkey sooner rather than later, because the more we go down this road that we're on. Just stupid things keep happening. We have more malinvestments. And ultimately, what I worry about is, you know, two out of the three powers we're talking about, or three out of three powers we're talking about here, have nuclear weapons. And, you know, there's psychopathy in in the human condition. And who knows if somebody's stupid enough to start thinking about using them. And, um, you know, I pray that that won't happen. I hope it won't happen. I don't think it'll happen, but it's possible that it could happen. It would certainly fuck up the works, wouldn't it? Yeah, it really would. And, uh, you know, we killed 50 million people in the last fourth turning, which is considered to be kind of the Depression of World War II. And, you know, I don't think we have to go for a new all-time record, right? I mean, what I'd like to see happen is some leadership from one of these countries or all of these countries to realize that the problem is we don't have a neutral reserve currency and we need a reset. Right. 
this is not the end of the world. I mean, the people will still be here, the factories will be here, the, the crops will be here, the natural resources will be here. What we're talking about is a monetary war where nobody knows what the right price is of anything. And the reason for that is these governments that control these currencies can just print them as much as they want. And we've just got to stop that. We've got to take that power out of their hands or else we're all going to continue to suffer enormously for it. And, you know, unfortunately, they don't see it and they're not thinking about solving the problem. The only politician I ever saw in my lifetime was thinking about solving the problem was Ron Paul. And he's out of politics now because he's enjoying somewhat of a retirement. And as a result of that, you know, we've got to have some political leadership that says, all right, let's go back to a neutral reserve currency, full stop. And, you know, that that's just not emerging yet. And so the market is going to punish us with high inflation until the point where so many people are screaming that eventually that becomes to be realized as the problem. And hopefully the dollar is not worth zero before that occurs. But I think there's some possibility that it will be. Yeah, the idea of 50 million people dying is beyond horrifying. Put that right. as, put that aside, right? That that's that's the road that nuclear might lead us down and and it's just that is for all intents and purposes the end of the world. I mean, I don't even know what the hell else you would call it at at this juncture in history if something like that were to take place. I I just can't help but think of I mean, look, nobody wants to endure the world's biggest humanitarian crisis ever in history, right? Nobody would ever want to live through that period of time. But just putting that aside, can you imagine that, can you imagine, you know, this country as it stands now and the citizens of this country who have been you know, really an entire generation that's never experienced real war, you know, but for a lot of our soldiers, a generation that has been couched to believe that everything that they do, you know, is right. A generation that's been told that they have a right to feel comfortable at all times. A generation that, you know, flips shits about fucking whatever. There's Hey, there's not enough... There's not enough diversity in drama films that are being nominated for an Academy Award. Oh, that's a big fucking headline, you know, and people start task force and there's activists about it. People that are concerned with that. Could you imagine, you know, this group of Americans trying to process something like a nuclear war mentally? No, it, it would be the end of human civilization, I think. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I hate to even go there in terms of thought process. I, I do think that there is a strong remnant of good Americans that once the currency collapses or the crisis arrives, they will rise to restructure things in a sensible manner. I, I really do believe this. I, I think an important piece of all of it, though, is that the elites have to fail and they have to fail spectacularly because they're the ones who've taken us down these political roads or these policy roads that have left, left us in this, you know, we're in a box canyon that we can't get out of. And, you know, we can't, they're not going to bring the solution. I mean, the WEF bringing CBDC is not going to be the solution. The WEF, I mean, they all need to be in jail. You know, I mean, Larry Summers needs to be in jail. You know, um, the guys who run the Fed, they need to be in jail. Um, the politicians we have, they all need to be in jail. I mean, it, it's it's just, it's it's criminal 
how bad and incompetent our leaders have become. And, you know, the only good news is that we have the Internet, we have means to communicate with one another. And I would submit that the average American is is not nearly as bad as, as you know, they would have you think we are. I mean, we're not deplorables. We're smart, hardworking people who want to improve the world and just live our lives peacefully. And so what we've got to do is we've got to use our masses to get together and to consolidate, to educate others and, and you know, let, let the politicians recognize that we badly outnumber them and we want to rip the system down and build a better one. We want term limits. We want all kinds of things that, that they have no intention of granting us unless we absolutely demand it. And, you know, um, when, when the currency collapse and gasoline is $15 a gallon and, it, you know, there's, there are food riots, you know, somebody's going to rise up and go, look, folks, the reason this occurred is because you let these guys run your monetary policy, you let these guys spend too much, you know, we need to, we need to you know, have a constitutional convention and drastically change stuff. And if we don't, it's going to get worse. And, you know, so what I pray is that that kind of a leader emerges, um, somebody who's smart and understands the core problem, because the core problem really is the bad money. I mean, everyone thinks the core problem, I mean, all the, all the blue people think it's the red is the core problem. All the red people think the blue is the core problem. That's not the core problem. The core problem is the system we have and the money. And if we can break, you know, the, the monopoly they have on the money and we can fix the system, the other stuff will become much less contentious. So yeah, that's like know. almost what Russia is doing too. They're almost like yeah. hard resetting their entire monetary system, which is why you read all these things that that postulate that Russia could come out of this far stronger economically than they went into it. Absolutely. Just kind of, you know, uh, just backing their currency with their Absolutely. with their productive capacity, with their you know, with the commodities, with the resources, have, right? Yeah, with no, their resources. Yeah, they're, look, they're not a great country, and I mean. They're a big country, and they have a—they're a naturally endowed, you know, natural resource endowed country. You know, um, they on, on this monetary issue, I think they understand this correctly. You know, I'm not going to say I'm a fan of Putin, and I'm not going to say I'm a fan of the oligarchs. And I'm not going to say I'm a fan of the rule of law over there because I don't think it really exists. So, there are lots of things that are wrong with Russia, but one thing that's not wrong is that you know they've taken the position that you know the financialization of the world and the way the elites have structured the world have left them out in the cold and you know as much as anything else i think i think you know i mean russia just wanted a seat at the table and they've been treated you know like shit i mean you know we swore to them that we would not expand nato you know we told brezhnev this years and years ago and we've done nothing but expand nato and so, you know, um, having been lied to and having in their mind been betrayed, and if you look at the historical facts, I mean, it's not, I'm not pro-Russia, I'm just saying they have been betrayed on some of these things, uh, you can understand why they're frustrated. And, uh, you know, in turn, um, all the things they sell have been suppressed in price, you know, through the financialization of the world and the manipulation of these prices. And so they're saying, you know, they, they finally realize that, look, the weakness of the West is this you know rehypothecated financial pyramid that they built? And guess what? If we collapse that on a relative basis, we are going to be in a much stronger position. And I think that's what he just did. That's what Putin just did. He realizes what he's doing. I mean, they're aware of the. Just so you know, and I wrote about it a little in my letter. They're aware of the gold you know manipulation scheme. You know, they they went to the GATA conference in 2005. You know, they they know exactly what they're doing. You know, they they. 
they recognize how out of our skis we are with all this financialization, and that's why they're pulling the plug. Well, and they'll benefit as a result. I want to ask you about that, so hold that thought for a second, but I want to go back to something that you were saying about you know riots and food shortages. Last year, before the Russia-Ukraine thing even happened and before the inflation even became a problem, back when I first started my blog, so it was probably August or September of last year, I wrote an article called The U.S. is Turning into a Third World Country and Nobody Even Notices, or The U.S. is uh, Turning into a Third World Country Right Before Our Eyes, and you know, the, the gist of the article was, hey, kind of look at look at what's going on. Right. We I, I walked into a Target. I was in San Francisco, which is what prompted me to write the article. And San Francisco just, you know, I've been there maybe once a year over the last five or six years has noticeably deteriorated just over the course of, you know, three, four years. I mean, badly deteriorated you know the the area where you know the the cable car rides used to be where the gap used to be where it was always tourists has just gone to total shit i mean it just it looks totally different than it did like just three or four years ago and i know because i used to run the same route through the city uh all the time so uh you know i mean i was in a target there and i just saw like the shelves were just completely wiped clean and i'm like and a couple weeks prior, I had been to uh, the Jersey Shore, and there was a stand that was selling crab cakes, and there was a big sign outside, you know, due to inflation, uh, you know, the price of crab has gone up, or it's unavailable, or some something, you know. And I'm just putting these things together, just like, man, like, you know, shit's kind of like falling apart a little bit here, and it doesn't really, I guess maybe because COVID was kind of the cloak that all this stuff happened under, um, plus, people are just generally ignorant. But, Larry, if you look at countries that have fallen apart, like, what does it look like in the early stages, right? If you if you look at hyperinflation, what does it look like in the early stages? Because what, what I'm seeing now, you know, with l- inability to import items, all these supply chain issues, you know, record inflation – uh, I think this. I think this is it. And having having so so, I've never lived through a hyperinflation, right? I've read as many books as I could possibly find on the topic. I'm fortunate that on Twitter I've got you know seventy thousand followers plus. A lot of them are from other countries, and I get a lot of DMs and a lot of people, you know, particularly South America, Argentinians. They've been through a bunch of inflations. I've gotten some from uh, Turkey and so on and so forth. And people say, yeah, this is the pattern. You know, we, we get it. You know, I lived through one. Yep, this is how it happens. You know, you start seeing shortages. You start seeing huge price increases. You start, you know, things just don't work, you know, because, I mean, prices are the mechanism that makes the economy work, right? right. And when the prices are no good, you know, you either end up with shortages or too much or, you know, something doesn't work. I mean, it's, um, you know, the theory here, the economic theory is if prices are correct, Everybody does what's in everybody's best interest, and this invisible hand creates more productivity, and all of our lifestyles get better. You know, we get more for less. It's not just inflation; it's productivity that really is what matters. You know, the nation, the notion that Correct. you need inflation and animal spirits to create growth—that whole Keynesian—that's all just bullshit. It's complete and total bullshit. We need efficiency. You didn't have any inflation from 1789 to 1900. And yet, you know, there's never been a, a period in the United States or in the world where so many people climbed out of poverty and got to being really middle class. And there was no inflation at all. So, you know, this is inflation is a Keynesian myth designed to put the people in the academics and the people in 
government to give them a lot of power. And, you know, what we really should have is a deflationary world. I mean, Jeff Booth writes about this in his book. It's a brilliant book. Everyone should read it. Um, and so, you know, yeah, I mean, I, I see all the early signs. I mean, I, you know, an example I, I can cite is you know, my daughter and her boyfriend were recently in Puerto Rico uh, for a long weekend, you know, um, because they worked super hard and they thought they deserved it. They got down there. It was a Sunday and, and they were supposed to come back on Sunday. Well, as it turns out, no one was flying because there was a there were fuel shortages and there were pilot shortages, <laughs> and and the next thing she knew, she couldn't get home until Wednesday. Now she could have flown from Puerto Rico to Atlanta on Monday. There was like one flight leaving. The seats were two thousand dollars a seat. Right, right. And you know we've all kind of come to take certain things for granted that you could go to an airport, get on a plane, and travel somewhere. Yep. Well, turns out on that particular day she couldn't. You know the the flights from Puerto Rico to the U.S. there weren't any. Or if there was one, it was $2,000. So, you know, this is the kind of thing that starts to happen when you see, and, and, and for all I know, I think part of this was that jet fuel had just taken a huge spike. So my guess is that what the airlines were doing was, what well, the hell with this? You know, we got to make sure these planes are totally yeah, full. This isn't going to work, that's, right? That's when we're going to start to really see, like, people get it, you know? We, I don't expect people to be walking around understanding uh, how monetary policy works. I'm not expecting people to, you know, look into Fed policy, uh, even to, you know, catch inflation uh, and really kind of be alarmed about record inflation. Maybe people notice prices going up, whatever. But let me tell you something. When fucking Paris Hilton has to, like, put down her Starbucks coffee for an extra three minutes because her fucking private jet to, you know, Tijuana or whatever her plans are for the evening gets delayed because the price of oil you know, goes up 20% in a session, uh, you know, and then she goes to Twitter and is like, oh my God, like shit's fucked up. Stuff's not working, you know, like, and then like 10 million other Paris Hilton followers read that, you know, when, when it starts to bleed into the mainstream like that, you know, when Taylor Swift writes a song like, hey, I can't afford shit and I'm worth $40 million. Uh, when that single drops, people are going to start to understand it. And when it, you know, I've always made this argument, look, that w we have this quality of life in the United States that we think will persist. All these Marxist dorks that are out there arguing for, you know, Marxism and socialism, you know, they don't understand that they will be surrendering their quality of life as it exists today. They think they're going to be able to go play fucking Call of Duty on their, you know, Microsoft Xbox through their internet connection and guzzle Mountain Dew or whatever they fucking do at night, you know, uh, and have like, you know, little uh, gaming parties and that life's going to continue to be the same under a Marxist or socialist state plan system. These people don't think about what could, you know, what would happen to their quality of life when, you know, under, you know, like a communist system or under a socialist system. And so when we'll start to notice people wake up is when all of these negative changes that are taking place, right? We have a guy in office right now that doesn't seem to understand what day it is. We have a, a vice president that, you know, has the IQ of a can of tennis balls. We have uh, Russia invading Ukraine and basically saying they want to rewrite the global monetary system as it exists. We import every single thing we get in the country from China, and the only thing we export is dollars, and demand for those are drying up. And nobody's really going to notice until fucking, you know, 
Some gamer goes to the local 7-Eleven to buy his bag of fucking Doritos and his Mountain Dew like he does coming home from his, you know, Marxist on campus rally. I saw him at Penn a couple weeks ago or whatever they were, you know, and, and all of a sudden the Doritos aren't there. And then it's going to dawn on this guy, you know, something's going on out here in the real world. Maybe I should try to fucking, you know tap into it a little bit and that that's you know when it becomes an inconvenience for people is when it's really gonna start to be you're gonna see some wild shit you're gonna see some really wild shit it's the difference larry between pointing out in january 2020 that covid was gonna be a big deal and saying hey stock up on shit you know which i was laughed at for berated for called a fear monger for and three months later watching every tom dick and harry standing in line in costco fighting over a six-pack of fucking uh, paper towels, you know? And so we're at that preliminary spot right now with this problem. Where are we going to be in six months or a year, right? I think that's right. I mean, I think, I think you've got it absolutely right. I mean, it's going gonna, it's gonna to really bite. And the, the narrative is, you know, I mean, I just saw it this morning. You know, um, the president said, look, this is, you know, two things that's causing this inflation, you know, COVID and Putin. Well, all right, but how about the fact that we, you know, shut down all drilling for new oil and gas? We made, you know, all kinds of restrictions, all ES, kinds of ESG restrictions on fracking. You know, we never, you know, there was a pipeline that we could have run from Canada and the United States, which would have helped, you know, enormously with energy. And that was all shut down because Warren Buffett had the power to protect his, uh, his, his rails, his rail investments. I mean, you know, th- look, these things have consequences. And the sad part is we all pay the price of the stupidity of the people running the show. And how do you and, talk about inflation without talking about the money supply? Well, yeah, right? You know, there's I mean, two things Money supply's in, up 40% in two years, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, it, it's, um, you know, the, the average American, I mean, sadly, isn't really aware of macroeconomic stuff. And that's okay. I mean, they're, you know, they're smart, hardworking people. They're trying to feed their family and take care of their own. They don't understand it. I'll tell you what, though, Chris, I mean, I do say this from my observation, you know, inflation's on people's radar screens now. I mean, it's, you know, everywhere I go, you know, it doesn't matter. Top to bottom of this society, people are aware of it. They're talking about it. They're thinking about it. What they're hoping and what they're praying and what the politicians are praying is that it's temporary and it goes away. I think the sad thing is those of us who understand how the system works and the guts of the system think that actually the opposite is true and it's not going away in fact it's going to get worse and you're right in what you say in that there will be a tipping point people will say holy shit you know this is really a problem and i mean it's some of it's occurring now one thing i noticed recently you know credit the credit expansion in the last couple of months i mean everything's gotten more expensive right and you, yet the economy seems to be bumping along and the stock market's doing fine well, part of the way that's getting dealt with is that the credit cards are going up. And credit card balances, the credit credit growth in the last couple of months has been huge. So everyone's costs have gone up, but everyone's just putting it on their credit card. Well, you can do that for a couple of months, but then the you know the 12 to 20% interest rate starts to kick in, right? And and you start getting closer to your limit. And you know, problems are gonna occur. So, you know, sadly. You know, I mean, and some of the fertilizer price increases, as an example, they haven't factored into the food costs yet, but they will because farmers are planting now with that higher price fertilizer. So, you know, we'll see that in six months, nine months, a year. You know, the rent just came out. The rent numbers just came out. They're up 17 percent year over year. 
and yet the CPI is only showing three or four percent increase on on housing costs, which is a joke because housing prices are also up twenty percent year over year. So, you know, I think sadly, what most people are are doing is they're making a mistake, which humans naturally do, which is they're extrapolating the past to the future, and they're saying, well, we live in a deflationary world, and prices have been coming down for a long time, and yes. We've got some inflation today, and it's because of Putin or COVID or whatever the hell it is, but it'll go away. And sadly, I think that's a cognitive error. It's not going to go away. Sadly, it's going to get worse. It's going to get a lot worse. And at that point, you know, then there are going to be consequences and, you know, served to those in power because, you know, the rest of us are going to be just so fed up with this shit that if somebody emerges who understands what's going on and has a plan for fixing it, you know, that's going to be very, very attractive to a lot of people. Um, but unfortunately, you know, it'll probably, it, it'll take some time for the correct solution to emerge because we always do the wrong thing first. So Yeah, well, hopefully it doesn't take too long. <laughs> well, yeah, no kidding. You know, you know until, yeah, until until somebody gets so pissed off in the Ukraine and but we definitely, decides to exchange a nuke. I would say that right? government, like, definitely like almost makes a point of exhausting all other options before doing the right thing. Like, of course, <laughs> you know, like yeah. they just, yeah. it becomes like, I, I've never seen people fail to identify the source of a problem the way that the government does it sometimes, you know, right. it's but, like but, oil. But Chris, it's, it's, it's not, it's not that they're entirely stupid. I mean, some of them are stupid, but that's not the entire explanation. This goes back to the, you know, the Upton Sinclair quote, it's hard to make somebody, a man understand what, what they have, what they get paid to not understand. I mean, right. the people in government have, you know, a strong incentive to not understand this and to, to bullshit their way through this. I mean, they're not stupid. I mean, some of them are, but, but many of them are not. <laughs> and, 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 and so as a result, you know, their job is to spin this in a way that keeps the system going and keeps them in power. I mean, I would not want to be in any of these people's positions because I got to tell you, they got a losing hand. I mean, they got they got jack shit in their hand and, you know, consequences are going to be served here. So, yeah, uh, it's it's interesting. I wrote a, I wrote a piece, I think, a week or two ago, basically asking whether or not China is, you know, knowingly leading us toward World War Three. Uh, you know, which I think if they if they move into Taiwan, that that is a big step, obviously. And, uh, you know, China's U.N. representative said a couple of weeks ago that, you know, the 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 West collaboration with Britain and Australia, they were they were testing those hypersonic weapons mm-hmm. is uh, may drag other parts of the world into conflict, such as what happened in Ukraine, you know, so kind of a, a soft illusion there to uh to taiwan but what i concluded at the end of that piece um is that i I made this poker analogy i'm going to read a paragraph here i just wrote the right play here is to muck our cards and return to the table for the hand with slightly fewer bargaining chips but maintaining world order and humbly accepting the fact that at least from an economic standpoint russia and china called our bluff and likely have us bested for the short term. And so, you know, the argument I'm making is the wrong play here is to kind of take this down to the river card, holding nothing, you know, but our nuts, 
uh, our actual <laughs> balls, not the nuts in poker, but, you know, holding nothing but our wangs and waiting to be check-raised by China, uh, you know, when they try to take Taiwan, because we, we don't really have the bargaining chips that we might think that we have in a situation like that, but for our military arsenal, but, you know... What the hell, you know, what, what, what's the benefit of mutually assured destruction of both countries? It's, it's, it's horrifying. So what do we do? Like, you know, I think we have to, we have to concede, I think, to some degree that we've been bested, you know, when it comes to productive capacity, when it comes to sound money and, and kind of, you know, hey, we got checked here a little bit by absolutely by Russia. I mean, and it, we're going we're going to get checked by China and so yeah, I, I agree ahead. no I completely agree I mean it, true leadership would stand up and say you know folks we, we we chose the wrong path we chose Keynesianism you know post Bretton Woods and it's been a mistake you know unlimited credit growth um, fractional reserve banking fractional reserve you know markets gold markets etc it's been a mistake and as a result we've got enormous economic imbalances that can only be solved through enormous inflation and a lot of pain or a complete and outright collapse like the 30s and we don't want either of those to occur what we should do is we should go to a neutral reserve currency let's pick one gold and um and all support that as as the way to settle debts among countries and to provide soundness for our currencies now that would have to result in a much higher gold price and a reset but um you know the history of hyperinflations is that after they're over if you reset to a sound currency things come back pretty quickly right i mean people want to live their lives and you know when when, when the rules of the game are fair people play the game in a way that it serves everybody's interests and everybody kind of wins but the problem we've got right now is with this fiat game where the U.S. is the reserve currency, we print all the money and get shit for free and, you know, swing our weight around with our military. I mean, that's that's a that's a world that, that a big part of the world has just told us. I mean, a huge part of the population of the world has just told us we don't want to live in that world anymore. Right. You know, and if we were smart, you know, like Britain, when they for, when they let go of a lot of their colonies, we would do just as you've talked about kind of a structured retreat. You know where where we get to maintain our relevance without collapsing, right? And actually show some leadership. We and don't, say, and we don't have to come out and say it like you just said, like, "Hey, yeah. everything's fucked because we made all the wrong decisions for the last five decades." But but let's take a step. Hey, yes, we're gonna You're have right. a, we're gonna have You're a right. renewed focus on right. So you know, le- you know, do what the Fed does. Talk yourself in circles a little bit. Let the market kind of understand here's the direction we're heading. There's going to be volatility no matter how you present it. You know, well, lead into it and then over the course of, you know, 6 months, a year, you know, really start to make some changes that are going to batten well, down the hatches. Go ahead. Exactly. And I, and I think I think frankly just by having if they did like a tripartite, you know, conference with you know Russia, China, and us at the table, and we just went so far as to just say, you know what, you guys have got some legitimate points here, and we are going to give you a seat at the table, going forward. Let's let's collectively, since we're the three biggest powers with nukes, let's collectively figure this out, so we don't blow ourselves up. Right. Okay, right? And you know, Russia, you got a ton of you know, you've got a ton of natural resources. You know, not that much in terms of productive economy. You know, your people have drinking issues, right? China, you you know, you're the factory and the engine of the world. You've got a lot of other issues, but, you know, in terms of your communism, et cetera. 
you know, and we're we're the old world leader, but you know, there's still a lot of great things about the system we've got, the rule of law, etc. And so, you know, let's figure out a way to solve this monetary issue in a constructive manner that that serves all three of us, right? And addresses your concerns without cutting our nuts off, right? right. I mean, I you know, yeah, we can't do that. That conversation could occur and should occur. Now, whether there's the leadership in our country to do that, and you know, again, you know, politicians and and you know, that's the adult conversation, right? The sad thing is, you know, that people act more out of their own self-interest. They don't always necessarily think in terms of a broader set of adult thoughts. And so, you know, that may not happen, probably won't happen, sadly, right? Yeah. And, you know, look, we're focused on banning Russian players from Wimbledon. And so do we have the do we have the foresight and the humility to have a trilateral meeting like you're talking about? Probably not, right? Right. S- sadly, right. probably not, right. because we're we're at this posture now, which is you know we got to hold our ground. And meanwhile, while we've been doing this podcast, a a headline passed that uh, Russia has test launched a new intercontinental ballistic missile. Um, oh and great! Putin says that the new missile will provide quote food for thought for those who try to threaten Russia quote. So that's that's where we're at right now. You know, wow. Yeah, that's not good. We're I stepping mean, away from the trilateral meeting. <laughs> not yeah, towards it. Uh, exactly. That's not good because, you know, I mean, we all know in, from the schoolyard, you know, threats lead to blows and blows lead to fights. And, right. You know, it just it makes no sense. It just makes no sense. This is not adult behavior. Um, you know, and we all live on the same planet. Uh, and, you know, and those of us who are, you know, we're the we're the fodder. You know, we don't want the cannons to start shooting. You right. Know, I've got two. I've got two sons in their twenties. You know, I don't want them fighting in China or fighting in Russia. You know, just as you know, I I, I just missed the Vietnam draft. I was too young. I almost had a number, and you know, um, it was tragic what happened to you know a lot of our guys in Vietnam. Yeah. You know, three million Vietnamese dead. Three million people dead because it's half the Holocaust. Yeah. I mean. You know, why? Because Henry Kissinger had a hard on and decided, you know, there was a thing called the domino theory. No, because the military industrial complex realized they'd get rich off of a war. I mean, it's just it's incredibly sad and stupid, the leadership that, you know, we've got in these countries. And and that's why I mean, the bright thing here is that the Internet, a combination of the Internet and, and in my view, you know, Bitcoin as a digital money is what's going to bring all this stuff down. I mean, you know, we reached peak centralization. We had peak centralization in World War II where we slaughtered 60 million people. And what we're seeing is now these big economies, these big organizations, these big things, they've got diseconomies of scale. You know, you can get psychopaths who get a hold of them and they can do bad shit. You know, just like Hitler was a psychopath and he did bad shit. You know, one could argue that, you know, Putin is a psychopath and he might do bad shit. Z is probably a psychopath. He might do bad shit. And, you know, the U.S., I mean, although not necessarily run by psychopaths, it's possible that pushed into a corner, we might do bad shit, too. And, you know, I mean, the average human being doesn't want to go slaughter his neighbors. Right. But, you know, you create a you create a nation state and you create all these interests and you create some people who benefit from it, and particularly the military industrial complex. And pretty soon you start, you know, you get all these chicken hawks who've never fought and think right. the war is great. Right. And pretty soon you start saber rattling and the next thing you know, real bullets are flying. And, you know, I mean, look at 
Look at what happened to all our guys in the, you know, in the Middle East. I mean, it's tragic, just tragic what happened to these people. You know, for, for what? I mean, you know, to, to protect Halliburton? I mean, right. give me a break. Right. Well, and it's it's stunning to see how both sides of, you know, if you just look at Russia and Ukraine, you can look at, you know, putting aside what you feel about it and what I feel about it, you see people in Russia that are kind of being rallied around the idea that this is a great idea. And you see people in Ukraine that are protesting this vehemently and think it's a terrible, you know, humanitarian crisis for them, uh, which it is. Um, but it's interesting to see how it can be spun up in in two, oh, yeah. in two completely oh. different ways. I think the internet is um, good at kind of homogenizing some of it, you know, for people globally because it th- there's no like national echo chamber, and except for like you know China, uh, North Korea, places that limit their internet access, stuff like that. But really, it's it's more difficult now than it's ever been to push a false propaganda narrative, even though it's still possible. Um, I was going to say, they, they're still pretty good at doing it, but at least the internet gives you a, a means to communicate and learn from like-minded individuals, you know, and to understand that the narrative as pushed by the New York Times or the Washington Post is not the narrative that we, you know, or CNN or any, any of the other big media outlets. That's not the narrative we have to accept. Right. You know, you, you, you can go to antiwar.com, you can go to all kinds of great sites, it will give you a lot of, you know, alternative, you know, views on what's going on. And when you really thoughtfully consider those views, you come to realize that, hey, I'm being lied to, you know, yeah. completely and totally. And the people who are doing the lying are doing it because they have a vested interest in the, the agenda. You know, they're talking their book I and mean, they have a vested interest in the agenda they're pushing. And, um, you know, it's it's very sad because, you know, we're talking, you know, real lives that are hurt, you know, both kinetically in a war and financially, I mean, this is going to be, you know, a financial war. I mean, if, you know, the, the, the middle to lower middle class in this country, you know, a $10 gas is going to be is going to be just hurting beyond belief. I mean, these people are marginal to begin with in terms of, econ- you know, economic conditions. You know, most of them couldn't scrape together a few hundred dollars if they had to. You know, you start taking away the, the basic things that allow them to go to their job, the gasoline, and... It's a, you know, it's, it's a real problem. It's just, it's so sad. It's so incredibly sad. You know, I love the political solutions. Well, okay, maybe we should send them some more printed money to help subsidize, you know, their their high gasoline costs. Right? That's what I I mean mean, about, it's what I mean about trying to find every possible solution but the right, the right solution, one. right? Yeah, exactly. You know, oil prices going up. So like, inflation. okay, let's yeah. shut down more oil drilling in the country. Let's print more right. money. Let's, you know, try right. to control the price. Let's, right. you know, target the oil companies. It's like, no, 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 no. Like, yeah. how the fuck do you possibly land on everything but the actual solution? You know, it's like <laughs> fucking supply and demand. You know, like fifth yeah. grade math. We're not it doing is, anything it, crazy here. And it's the same thing with you know. With inflation in general, right? Like, what are no, we going to do I mean, to control look, to control inflation? Anything except limit the money supply, you know? Like, <laughs> yeah, right. Well, it's it's it, you know, we truly do live in clown world. I mean, it it just and it's I mean, and that's and that's why these powers that be are going to fail, and they are going to fail spectacularly. I mean, the problem is that they're going to cause us a lot of pain in the process of their failure. But so be it. I just want to see them fail because. 
you know, I think that on the other side of their failing, you know, people will hopefully there a, a, a sound alternative will emerge and it'll be pretty friggin' obvious because most people will have seen what happened and, and therefore, you know, we'll, we'll get these issues fixed. I mean, I, you know, look, I mean, I've been accused of being naive and perhaps I am, but I am an optimist. I mean, if you look at the human condition, you look at, you know, worldwide, I mean, we've made a ton of progress and I don't think it's going to stop. You know, there are a lot of good things going on, but, um, you know, this, this issue, this monetary issue is, a, is, is the problem of our time in my view. And it's going to become very acute here, I think in the next one to five years. And, um, and that's why I, you know, I push everybody to try and keep their savings in sound money, what I consider to be sound money, you know, digital sound money and analog sound money, I mean, Bitcoin and gold. So, um, yeah, kind of along those lines was the last thing that I wanted to ask you on an optimistic note. Uh, you know, when I think about the idea of the Fed potentially succeeding with this soft landing, and I heard somebody laying out this case a couple days ago, must have been on another podcast, probably Palisades, but I can't remember who it was. Um, you know, laying out the, the, the following case for, you know, optimism, right? That, uh, you know, look, inflation comps are going to be difficult here heading into the next uh you know year from now so the percentage rise in inflation is going to likely decrease now that'll be pitched as a success in stopping inflation but really what it'll mean is that you know inflation is still out of control it's just moving a little bit slower compared to the year prior um mm -hmm. but that will be that will be positioned as some kind of success if inflation comes down to whatever, 3%, 4%, even if it comes down to 5%, you know, they're going to say, oh, we're making progress, whatever, um, you know, and, and the Fed, I think, is going to hike rates, you know, we'll see until probably until something breaks. Um, but sure. let's, let's say the Fed can get to 3% without destroying the entire global economy, which is a big if. And That's let's say, right, let's say inflation can get down to 3%. Uh, you know, so real rates would wind up at zero. Say we can get re somehow, say we can fucking somehow get real rates to like maybe 50, 50 basis points, right? And the market stabilizes a little bit and the Russia-Ukraine thing starts to die down. Uh, you know, that would kind of be the, the bull case, the success case for saying, oh, we engineered a soft landing. Do you think that's possible in any way? Uh, and, and if so, you know, kind of what comes after that? Yeah, so... So the answer to your first question is no. I don't think that's possible. <laughs> but I mean, not not even not even close to being possible. I mean, I think that's the that's the tail event. I mean, it, it's you know, it, it's a ten percent probability. You know, ninety percent, it's going to be worse than that. I mean, could inflation soften? Sure, a little bit. Yeah, the year-on-year -year comps will get better. Um, you know, will the Fed raise rates? Yeah, they're going to try to do so. But you know, in the past when they've done it, it hasn't taken much to have something blow up. I mean. The math is such that if they do not continue to print, the system will implode. Right. And it, it's getting larger and it's coming faster and harder. And so I think that it's pretty clear to me that they're going to have to pivot. We don't know when. Um, I don't, you know, I, I, I'm surprised. I mean, I, I would have thought the stock market would be down by now. I think they would have too. My letter talked about this, how one of the ex-Fed guys said, you know, we got to bring this market down. I mean, they, the, the stock market's kind of behaving like we're going into hyperinflation. I mean, it's yeah, kind of melting it, up. It is. Do you know it's, what I mean? It's wild. It's still, it's, it's still 
like uh, multiples of where it was from the March exactly. 2020 drawdown. And going into March 2020, we were at what felt like fever pitch valuations and we're multiples higher now, which is just crazy. So when, when you look at like market cap to GDP and any kind of reversion back to that mean, you're talking about at least 40 or 50 percent. It has to come down from here. Absolutely. I mean, the stock market to me is doing what it's doing because people are anticipating the next Fed pivot and more money printing. And they know that the, the Fed views the stock market as something that's very important. And so, um, you know, it's just doing what it should do, which is to front run what they think Fed policy will be. Right. Otherwise, it would be lower. Um, and, you know, I mean, look, you've got increasing costs, you've got squeeze margins, you've got record multiples, you've got an economy that's really slowing down. I saw some shipment data the other day. I mean, you know, one of the early indicators of how the economy is doing is, is truck loadings. And it was amazing how, how much the truck loadings had come off in the last four weeks. So this economy is slowing down for sure. And, um, you know, with the stock market at peak multiples, peak earnings, peak everything, and the economy slowing down, the stock market's what, 5% off its high, something like that? It's not much. Maybe it's a little more. It's a little bit more than that. Is it what is it? How much is it off? Seven, eight, nine? I don't even. Yeah, know. I don't know. Maybe ten percent off its but, high right now. Maybe ten. But the point is, the point is that was a high that was extreme, and you know, a ten percent you know correction is is doesn't begin to account for how overvalued it was, and 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 a slowdown in the economy, and so, um, you know, that's that's going to happen. And uh, you know, and then that will filter through. And and by the way, the other thing that's going on—it's a big tell. Uh, today it's not happening, but it has been happening in general. Is the bond market? I mean, look at right. look at the ten years approaching three percent. You know, I mean that's that's up almost a hundred percent. You know, in the last year or so. And so, um, you know, it, it's it's you know, higher interest rates will slow down this economy. I mean, the whole argument for the stock market being high was always interest rates were so low. Well, that's changing. So you got you know higher interest rates, more inflation, margins getting squeezed, demand going down. And the stock market's only off 10%. That doesn't fit. That only fits if the stock market believes the Fed will pivot. And I think they will. They'll have to. They'll have to because eventually the bond market is going to force them to. I mean, who would own a 30-year bond that pays just under 3% right. when inflation's printing at 8.5%? Right. I mean, you're losing 5% a year if inflation stays there. So, you know, in, in five years of this 10-year bond that you're on, you're losing half your money? Yep. Boy, I don't think so. Yeah, it's I mean, insane. Just, it's absolutely if you, crazy. If you look at it, if you look at it, you know, through a one-dimensional kind of just surface, you know, hey, like right. here's here's where rates are and here's what the yield is. Why would you own this, right? But no, we've right. talked ourselves into you know an intellectual circle jerk of you know reasons to buy it. Uh, well, reason to buy well, bonds also, here. I mean, to, also, Chris, to be fair, I mean, you know. Um, you know, the five-year-out swaps are saying that inflation is going to be 2.75 to 3%. Right. You know, in five years. From from uh, 2027 to 2032, they're saying the average swap there is, is 2. Point, I mean, anyone who thinks inflation is going back to 2.7 ought to have their head examined. And one of the things that <laughs> people aren't factoring in enough here is inflationary psychology. Correct. You know, so everybody and their brother is getting fried by inflation. Well, guess what? I mean, I've got my son who's in his first job. and. You know, he, he sees it, and, I mean, there are, everyone's asking for wage increases, right? Well, okay, the companies are going to be forced to give wage increases because other people want to hire them. The labor market is tight as a drum, and as a result of that, 
you know, fine, they're going to give a wage increase, but you know what that means? They're going to have to increase their prices. And so it becomes a circle. It becomes a vicious circle, very similar to the 70s. And that's what I've always maintained. This whole period is going to look like the 70s on steroids, you know, and we'll be lucky if the wheels stay on and we just have an inflationary decade without the monetary system coming unglued. I think the monetary system is going to come unglued. But it's possible that, you know, if we had high inflation for a bunch of years the debt and GDP grew, the debt to GDP would come down. And it's possible that that's the solution to this. We just have kind of a, a very inflationary period. Um, and, you know, smart analysts like Luke Groman, that's what they think the outcome is. I think the outcome's hyperinflation because I think they lose control of the whole thing. But, you know, I've thought that in the past and been wrong. So everybody has to make their own, you know, judgment on what, you know, what, what's likely to occur. It's, it's hard to tell, right? We don't really know. We don't know what the events are going to be. But on the, you know, will inflation come down as you described? I'll take the over. Yeah. I mean, it's, it may come off the boil that it's on right now. But I think we've turned the corner. And that's that's the other thing to remember. We've got a lot of catch up. So we had, you know, we had a disinflationary trend. You look at all the money that's been created during a deflationary time and it didn't show up. Well, now we're in an inflationary time. Guess what? We got to we got to catch up. We got to make up. I mean, just the housing piece. I mean, you know, the the owner equivalent rent and rentals show in the inflation at like three or four percent. And yet, you know, housing prices were up 20 percent. Rent was up 17 percent. And that takes a while to work its way into the number. So, you know, we're going to, it's, I, I just don't see inflation coming down. I really don't. I mean, it might come down a touch, but I think we're going to go between, you know, medium inflation and high, higher inflation. Well, and you know, that's a problem. When right? you're, when you're at the bar tonight and the bartender asks if you want one more and right. you know, it's time to go home. You should just have one more anyways, because everything is uh, heading in the wrong direction. That's a wonderful piece of <laughs> pessimism to end there on. Yeah. You know, well, fucking the, the YOLO. Is, <laughs> yeah. Well, the, the optimism is on the, you know, be, be lucky for what we have right now because things could get worse. That's a great way and, to put it. You know, be, you know, be grateful for what you have right now because things could get worse. They probably will. But also be optimistic that, you know, a lot of things that are broken in this world, you know, the, the political system we have and the, you know, the messed up folks we have running the show, you know, they're, they're going to get their comeuppance here. Yeah. And you know, that'll be, that'll be satisfying. I mean, I, I look forward to seeing that. <laughs> so yeah. all things being equal, I'd rather just, you know, I'd rather just have peace on earth. Oh, and, me too. Uh, no, you know. I mean, the, if we had great leadership, you could solve this problem in, in six months. Yep. But, but, you know, sadly, we don't have – I don't see any great leadership It reminds me of that when you were talking about uh, chicken hawks before. And right. uh, it reminded me of the um, exchange oh, – Hang on just one second. Chris, yeah, sorry, I had a feeling you were going to say that. That's second. okay. Hey. Oh, good. I'm sorry. Chris. That's sorry okay. That. No problem. No problem. This is, and we're going to end it here. But uh, it just reminded me of um, the exchange between Ron Paul and Newt Gingrich at that debate back in, I think, 2011 or 2012, the presidential debate, where, you know, Newt Gingrich said to, to Ron Paul uh, something to the fact of, um, uh, something to the fact that, you know, I forget, but he was Gingrich was calling him a 
All right, here it is. Gingrich was calling Ron Paul a dangerous candidate, dubbing uh, <laughs> Gingrich a chicken hawk who avoided the Vietnam War. I don't want to fight a war that's unconstitutional, and I'm the dangerous person. You know, when Newt Gingrich was called to service in the 1960s during the Vietnam era, guess what he thought about danger? He chickened out on that. He got deferments and didn't even go, Ron Paul said on CNN. Um, but I remember that. And, and you know, Newt Gingrich said, well, I had a family. I had, I had two kids. I had this, that, and the other. And Ron Paul said right in the middle of the debate, you know what? When I was drafted, I had a wife, and I had kids, and I went. And that's the difference yep. between a guy like Ron Paul and a guy like Newt Gingrich and a fucking chicken hawk and a guy that, you know, a real leader that would do what's necessary to maintain peace. Uh, I don't know. Exactly. I don't know what the point is I'm trying to make, but just remember, reminded me of that. So, yeah, no, it's 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 very true. I mean, it's unfortunately I mean, I, I often say and this is I, I think we would be better off picking people randomly from the phone book and putting them in positions of authority in this country. Than we are with the electoral process that we have. Yeah, because I think the average American is, you know, it's it, the stuff is just common sense, and yet when you get into that whole game, it becomes ego and power, and you know, controlling things, and that attracts a certain kind of person who does not think of the common good. They think of what's good for themselves, and that's exactly. Sad. Here it is. I want to really I want to play it for you. I don't know if you're going to be able to hear it, but the, yeah, the, the podcast listeners will be able to hear it if I can finagle this the right way, which I'm sure I can't. But let's see if this comes through. And I don't like it when we send our kids off to fight these wars and when those individuals didn't go themselves and then come up and when they're asked, they say, oh, I don't think I could. One person could have made a difference. I have a pet peeve that annoys me to a great deal because when I see these young men coming back, my heart weeps for them. Speaker Gingrich. Well, Dr. Paul has a long history of saying things that are inaccurate and false. The fact is, I never asked for deferment. I was married with a child. It was never a question. My father was, in fact, serving in Vietnam in the Mekong Delta at the time he's referring to. I think I have a pretty good idea of what it's like as a family to worry about your father getting killed. And I personally resent the kind of comments and aspersions he routinely makes without accurate information and then just slurs people with. I need one quick follow-up. When I was drafting, I was married and had two kids, and I went. I wasn't eligible for the draft. I wasn't eligible for the draft. <laughs> I wasn't eligible for a draft. I wasn't eligible for a draft. It's like, bitch, shut up. You know what I mean? Fucking saying Ron Paul's, you know, casting aspersions and slurring people. Like, what kind of fucking scum do you have to be to make a statement like that about a guy like Ron Paul? That's, you know... Man, fucking yeah. Gingrich, man. Nasty <laughs> shit. Nasty shit. Yeah. Remember when Giuliani hit him at that one debate um, about the Iraq war? I can't remember what he did, but he really tried to humiliate him. And, um, you know, I mean, Giuliani is the is the lawyer for that family, the Sacklers, who were involved in, you know, that, that great documentary. Chris, have you seen Dope Sick? On, um, uh, no, I haven't. Boy, you should see it. I, I don't know. I think it's on Hulu. Um, it's a story of the OxyContin and the Sackler family. Just another example of how, you know, some elites, you know, basically got wealthy screwing, you know, the, the working class of this country by getting them hooked on these drugs that more or less killed them. Um, it's a great series, Dope Sick. I highly recommend people look at it. And 
uh, these these folks ought to burn in hell. Um, you know, and they they're they're under indictment, and and you know the judge was actually quite courageous. They they settled for billions of dollars when they'd avoid jail. The judge wouldn't accept the settlement. <laughs> he said, "No, I think maybe you guys need jail time. I think they're I think they're hiding out in Switzerland." But um, you know, it's there's been a lot there's been a lot of there are a lot of people in this country that don't really care about you know the welfare of this country. They care about their own welfare. Yeah. And, yep. you know, I mean, we're tired of it, right? I mean, it, you know, stop pissing on my leg and tell me it's raining. I mean, I, you know, you're pissing on my leg. I get it, you know. Uh, so we're, we're going to, you know, the, the average people of this country are going to fight to take it back. And uh, sadly, you know, we're going to have to endure a lot of pain to go through that transition. But I think on the other side, it's going to be a lot better. I wasn't eligible for the draft. I wasn't eligible for the draft. <laughs> All right, Mr. Lepard, it was a pleasure. Thank you so yeah, much for your time Chris. this I always enjoy talking to you. I can't Thank believe you. I haven't talked to you since September, so let's catch up uh, well, sooner than whatever you several like. months. I'm here. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Really appreciate your time, Larry. Bye-bye. That was the one, the only Lawrence Lepard of the EMAA, GARP Fund, EMA GARP Fund, high-quality individual, his information is in the podcast description. Appreciate you guys listening and for my patrons continuing to support the podcast link to my Patreon and my blog, Fringe Finance, are in the podcast description. I'm out of here. Peace.